0: Welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Just to let you know, you can find this podcast on its host site, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. If you're a premium subscriber, that's the only place you can access the premium episodes. You have to sign in with your username and password, and then click Premium Episodes. You can also find the podcast on iTunes, as well as Stitcher. And please, leave a review at those sites if you listen there. The higher the review, the further up the list the podcast moves. In being accessible to other people who have not heard of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Also, support the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber today or visiting the bookstore to purchase books that will help you in your faith transition. Thank you. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Brian Whitney, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you today?
1: I'm great. It is great to be back on probably my favorite podcast. Can I say that without sounding like a total suck-up?
0: I appreciate it. I no, we'll let you say that. In fact, it would be awesome, Brian, if you could just work that back in two or three more times during the interview.
1: Sure, you bet. You're doing great work, Bill. Seriously.
0: Well, I appreciate that, and uh, and I'm enjoying it. And it's been one of these things that's grown. You were the very first interview with another person that I did on the podcast. Uh, if listeners want to go back into the archives on mormondiscussionpodcast.org and find the Brian Whitney interview, the sound quality is horrible. I am just beginning to kind of figure out how to even ask a question, and yet you've been gracious enough to come back on. And so uh, this time I hope the sound is better, and uh, I'll ask some better questions.
1: Well, the questions were fine, Bill. I think that the sound quality was was new, but the content that I delivered was probably the most embarrassing part of the first no, no, interview. you, d- so. you did
0: you well, did great because I, I got you back on here. So let's um, let's start off. People who uh, have joined the podcast sometime after that interview are going to probably have no clue who Brian Whitney is. Uh, although I will say, I think you are one of kind of the um, the secret uh, people within Mormonism. And what I mean by that is there's lots of scholars that uh, that we recognize: Richard Bushman, Terrell Givens, Adam Miller. Uh, but I think you're one of these guys that's doing great work, kind of hiding hiding in the background. But for those who don't uh, don't know who Brian Whitney is, give us a little bio of yourself.
1: Well, it, probably the reason that people don't know me as well is because I haven't published anything substantial yet. Um, you know, maybe once I get a publishing career going, then I'll I'll be up there with the other monkey bucks. But um, I'm I'm a college student essentially. I go to Weber State University in Utah. I'm a history major, and I had the benefit of. Having a, a great career, uh, well, internship with the LDS Church History Department, and I've had some great experiences with um, speaking at a few conferences and uh, publishing a few papers. And I've just kind of been around the Mormon Studies circles; um, they've embraced me as one of their own, even though I feel like a complete fraud most of the time. Um, and yeah, it's just there's just been some good opportunities that have that have come my way.
0: The uh, the last time we sat and talked, you were. Uh, moderating a discussion forum, New Order Mormon, you, uh, were just beginning to kind of get your feet into the church history department. Maybe catch us up. Share some things that have been going on since then and, and where life has taken you.
1: Okay. Well, I, I stopped moderating any discussion forums very shortly after you and I spoke last time. Uh, my, my, uh, interests and career sort of took a different direction. And yeah, I, I was right uh, at the beginnings of my internship with the LDS Church History Department when we spoke. At that time, I was working on a Relief Society documentary history. Uh, and that was for a semester, and it was a, an accredited um, internship. And then Matthew Grow, who's the director of publications uh, for the Church History Department, he's also co-authored several books, um, such as the probably P. Pratt biography with Terrell Givens. Uh, he offered me to stay on and uh, hired me as his research assistant. And so for the next year and a half after that, I, I worked on a documentary history of all the correspondence between Brigham Young and Thomas L. Kane. Uh If you're not familiar with Thomas L. Kane, he was not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was really more of a political figure, uh, but he was somebody who took great interest in the Mormons at the time that they were being ushered out of Nauvoo and settling again in, in Council Bluffs. And ultimately, he played a huge role in uh, getting um, permission for the Mormons to settle out in the Great Basin uh, to establish themselves as a territory. And he continued having a positive relationship with Brigham Young for um, 30 years up until Brigham Young's death. And they wrote numerous letters back and forth. So it was it was a tremendous opportunity for me to be able to get into Brigham Young's own letters and documents, both the Thomas Kane as well as other uh, documents that were published during that 30-year period from 1847 to 1877 and uh, really got a good insight into the paradox that we call Brigham Young. Um, working with the Church History Department was an amazing opportunity.
0: Awesome. And uh, maybe so the listeners get a little bit of uh, some background between you and I, of course, we've talked several times just online uh, back and forth uh, whether it just be kind of some private messages and asking questions and getting answers and, and you sharing uh, some thoughts with me when I would have a question from time to time. But there was a point where I went out to Salt Lake City to moderate a Fair Mormon uh, conference, and you were gracious enough uh, to take me into the church history uh, library and give me kind of a tour of things. Uh, so not only did I get to meet you face-to-face, uh, which was certainly an honor, and I also got to meet uh, Stephen Harper and Mark Ashurst-McGee as well. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was a lot g- of fun.
1: It was a great day, and we had a great lunch.
0: Yeah, thank you, and I appreciate that. And uh, we kind of tag-teamed up on a friend of mine that we had with me, <laughs> and uh, as we were going through church discussions, I I think he he knew he was outnumbered, so that was Uh-oh. good. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's a good thing. So let's uh, talk for a moment. Something else you've been working on, which I find to just be super exciting is this Mormonism in Context website uh, that you created uh, maybe talk a little bit about the the impetus for this and and what it is that uh, that you've put together here
1: sure so i've i've with my time online and 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 seeing the interactions of um i guess you can say the disaffected mormon community uh that has a strong presence through like facebook groups and different discussion boards i've seen this this repeated pattern where people are are coming across uh, damaging information and it seems like now it's coming because people are becoming aware of perhaps the church's own gospel topics essays which as a side note maybe we if you want to talk about this more we can I was working at the church history department at the time that most of these were written um, so I, I do have some insight uh, that uh, into the compositional process in fact I gathered the sources for a few of these um, articles myself, um, but back to what I've noticed is that when people come across damaging information, it seems like they get stuck in the middle of this crossfire between um, critics of the church and defenders or apologists of the church. So what I mean is, is oftentimes it seems like people will find some unusual information that they didn't come across growing up, and then they'll springboard from that into a site like Jeremy Runnell's CES Letter or Mormonthink.com uh, or maybe they'll you know pick up Grant Palmer's insider's view of Mormon origins based on a recommendation of somebody else. Or maybe they won't really read anything. They'll just get stuck in these conversations with people who have perused these materials and who are at this point pretty convinced that this is the best information about the church. And then what I see them do is, uh, look for the opposite. Look for something that will defend the church. Um, and rightly so. I mean, you have this knee-jerk response, uh, that this is anti-Mormon. Um, and so they jump from that into something like fair and, you know, n- no disrespect to any of these parties on either side. Uh, but this is a polemical debate that's going on between these two opposing camps. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. Absolutely.
1: So you've got basically one side attacking the other side. Um, and their whole purpose is like for uh, Mormon think is to try to put out information that is going to discredit what the apologists uh, publish. And then on the other side, you've got the apologists who are trying to discredit what Mormon think has. And it's this direct confrontation between these two groups. And, and I think that a lot of people unwittingly get stuck as almost like a ping pong between the two. And it's it's a very rough emotional landscape to traverse. Um, I think a lot of people end up siding with the critics because the apologies just seem either overly defensive or sometimes belittling, snarky. Um, and the critics s- seem to have pretty decent sources on the information that they're putting out. Um, so I think what ends up happening is a lot of people end up becoming really dissatisfied with the apologetics and then from there they just end up digging deeper into the critical sources and it just becomes, in my opinion, it becomes an overwhelming task. It becomes uh, a a huge collapse of information on people. Um, I think that we talked about this in my first interview but it's it's like a 10,000 pound anvil just gets dropped in their laps uh, because the information is coming so quickly, particularly in the information age. Uh, that it's hard, it's hard to keep up with it and it's hard to make sense of it. And when you put a lot of bullet points together, it, it makes a pretty persuasive case, um, for most people to say, well, you know, okay, so maybe you can explain away one or two things, but when you have 20, 30 things that all stack up, how can the church be anything but a, a, a fraudulent, uh, you know, history? Um, so I feel for people that are stuck in that because there's a lot of really good people who are really trying to make sense of things, and they're not—they're not diving into this information because um, they have an agenda against the church or anything like that. But I, th- I think that most people are genuinely just shocked, dismayed, don't know where to turn to next. So that's kind of the setup. And I was in an online conversation actually with Jeremy Runnels, the um, the founder of CES Letter. And at first, he and I were pretty confrontational with each other, but. Um, we get along, and and we've we've spoken plenty of times in privately as well, and and I, I kind of see better where he was coming from uh, and what he was trying to create, and I think personally he didn't anticipate it to become uh, quite the resource that it has become, and now he's kind of engaged in this deadlock debate with Fair, um, but he and I are having this conversation where I was critiquing the methods that he was using, which in my opinion is is bullet pointing the historical information without providing a lot of context. Uh, it wasn't his intention to be a historian that was really interpreting things or really digging into things. His project started out because he was asked by a CES director to send me your list of, of challenging issues, and so he did. And it turned out to be an 80-page document. And that's what ended up becoming this website that's been floating around uh, the media. Uh, you know, the, the, It's become a, a viral sensation for some people. Um, so, anyway, I was critiquing the methodology used. John Delin was also part of the conversation. in fact, I think this was all hosted on john delan 's own Facebook page, if I remember correctly and and he kind of interjected and said, "Well, you know I appreciate that all of you historians who are well studied in methodology and in interpretation um, aware of the primary documentation and, and I, I appreciate that you guys are." All, you know, sort of above this and that you would put out something far more nuanced than what Jeremy would, but you're, you're not reaching the public. And I have to admit he's right. Um, as historians, we tend to kind of stick within the academic crowd and we tend to write articles that really only other historians or people that are really interested in reading history books are going to read. Um, and that's not your average person that's going online and finding out about the challenges that are present in Mormon history. Um, We're we're not doing a good job of reaching out to the public. And and in a way, shame on us uh, for that. And I understand the reason is because most of us are trying to build a career. And so for us, we're trying to build our curriculum vitae. And many of us are trying to land jobs teaching at a university level. And the kinds of things that they look for is... Professional journal publication, professional conference speaking, book publishing, and things of that nature. they're not really interested in things that we do on blog sites or things that we do to try to reach the general public um, so I can understand why most historians who are trying to pursue a career in the academy aren't reaching out, but on the other hand, I can also understand why John Delin and why others are saying, well, if you don't reach out, then this is what we're going to have we're going to have. CES letter. We're going to have Mormon think They're filling in that gap. So I think that's a little unfortunate because like I said, I think it throws people into this polemic debate between the apologists and the critics. Um, so I put together Mormonism in context as, as kind of my, um, I don't want to say my answer to it because it's, it's, it's not a direct response to CES letter or Mormon think. I guess you can say it's my contribution. Um, to the conversation, and what I think is missing from the debate between the two camps, the two opposing camps. And that's this idea of looking at Mormonism in its social context. In other words, looking at it for the times that it emerged in. I think that, well, I've become, over the past few years of of studying the history of Mormonism, I've become increasingly persuaded that Mormonism was born out of a tension with its host society and the religious environment of its day, and that Mormonism has always existed as a tension, a force of tension with society, um, and continues to have this opposition, tension, and in certain cases, assimilation or embracement with society. And so I think that we need to look at Mormonism not just for what happens inside Mormonism, but we need to look for how Mormonism is responding to what's happening in a larger American context.
0: Does that make sense? It does, and, and I think you 've done that and uh, and I think you hit on a, a a gem too when you say you know the member who maybe is unaware of the context and, and the issues uh, specifically, when they discover those, especially when they come from a critic and the critic provides sources for the material and, and those sources check out, and then they go on to an apologetic site uh, fair or or you know shields or some other one that 's out there jeff lindsay 's uh, you begin to realize that some of these sources are legit, and so you wonder why you've never learned these things the whole time. And and then as you go on to these apologetic sites, you realize that they're answering other questions you didn't even know existed. Yeah. And I think it can become a slippery slope. And what's missing from the entire conversation, which is what I think you've created here, is some context for the experiences that happened. I think often, I'll just use one example, and then I'll, I'll turn this back over to you to talk about what issues you cover and what kind of uh, various eras in the church you cover, but... So as the member goes into you know with the critic and they're looking at uh, what the critic is raising, the critic's raising different sources and things that uh, that are that they see as out of place within Mormonism. And as the member goes on to a place like Fair Mormon or Shields or wherever, they'll they'll find things. So maybe they're looking up one thing. Maybe they hear about Joseph Smith uh, practicing polygamy and some of the details such as polyandry uh, or the young or the young brides that he's sealed to. And then they go on to Fair Mormon and they realize that, wait a minute, there's all these other questions. There's such things as Joseph didn't really use the Nephite interpreters. He used a seer stone uh, in a hat. I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, within a 20-minute or a half-hour span, the members run into 10 or 12 different questions that uh, can throw kind of a wrench into their testimony because they sit back. And it just hits them. It's like, you know, the story I was raised with, the narrative that I was given doesn't fit even what the defenders of the faith are saying or all these other deeper things within the church. And yet I paid attention. I listened during Sunday school. I I go to church every week. And, and yet, for whatever reason, those things tend to not be covered. And as they struggle over those things, what's missing is what you give, which is this context, which really kind of uh, takes these issues um uh, I was mentioning earlier that these things didn't occur in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the word of wisdom. Yeah. We often want to think that, uh, that Joseph creates, uh, section 89, of the doctrine of covenants kind of out of, out of thin air. And it's an absolute miracle because who else knew that these things were bad for people? Uh, the reality is that Ash this discussion's did. going on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. The discussion's going on. And while they're, dis- while they're discussing that there's these things that are bad and those things that are bad, Joseph, with some level of inspiration goes in and kind of picks out the gems from this whole list of things that people are discussing. And he takes kind of these real things that are actually do impact our health. And he puts those as, as section 89 of the DNC. And so it's certainly a mix of inspiration, but it's also needs to be understood fully. Uh, and the only way we can do that is when we put it in context. So tell us as I just blabbed on for five minutes about nothing, tell us the different eras that you talk about and the various issues that you try to cover
1: before I do that, I want to just respond to something that you just said that i that I found profound in a way uh you You mentioned specifically the numbers ten to twelve issues that they come up with, and I found that interesting because that's exactly what the church found when it surveyed its members um that there were about ten to twelve. Ongoing issues that people were leaving the church over or that people had disturbing questions over. And it's things like blacks in the priesthood or the uh, historicity of the Book of Mormon or historicity of the Book of Abraham. Uh, polygamy is always number one on the list. But if you look at the, um, gospel topics essays that were put out, there was 12 essays, I think, you know, 11 or 12 essays that ended up being released. That's because those were the top issues that people responded with. Um, the, a lot of people don't know, but the correlation department of the church has a social, a social science survey team uh, under their wings, and they do send out surveys to members, and sometimes they send out surveys to less active or inactive members as well. Um, to try to figure out what 's going on out there, and the most recent one that was sent out was about temple garments and what people 's opinion of temple garments are um, and that was a public survey that they invited anybody to go on and to and, and to answer um, what their opinions are
0: Let me ask you a question to me before you jump into the answer yeah. of the the errors you cover and the issues you cover uh and, and feel free to just say no comment, but are there any other essays you're aware of that are still on the way? not
1: that i'm aware of there there i I will say that there were more topics that were discussed as potentials um, when I was there than what we have out. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be anything moving forward at this time. That doesn't mean that there won't be, but at this time, I don't see anything uh, that's in the works. I do keep in touch with, with a number of people over there. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think that they hit on, I would say, you know, some of the biggest ones. I mean, I, I wish that they would do something on Mormonism and Freemasonry because that seems to be, Always, in a topic that that crops up. Um, especially, I mean, we had a couple of recent publications. We had uh, Joseph's Temples that Michael G. Homer published, and then we've got Greg Crawford Books is uh, about to publish um, a book by Joe Steve Swake the Third, who's an active Freemason and Mormon, uh, and he's publishing a history. I think it's being co-written with uh, Cheryl Bruno. Um, that'll that'll be. It seems like fairly game changing on the conversation of, uh, of Mormonism and Freemasonry and their dynamic relationship that they've had, um, which Joe argues can be seen since the very beginnings of the church and not just in Nauvoo. So it, you know, th- these are topics that are of interest to people. So I hope that the church, uh, history department will, uh, take the impetus to write something, to write their response on that. And that's what I think is, is so important about these gospel topics essays, um, is that they do offer the church's perspective on it, at least as you know, it, an endorsed perspective, something that the that we know that the quorum of twelve and the first presidency put their stamp of approval on. Um, now, I'm not going to go as far as to call them doctrinal statements. I, I don't think that that that's their purpose. I, I see them personally more as uh, kind of like a, a Bible dictionary <laughs> um, or a topical dictionary in a way, like something that would be appended to a Sunday school manual. Um, I don't see them as official declarations in the same sense of something that bishops are going to read over the pulpit or that, uh, is going to be read at a general conference session. Uh, I put them more in the curriculum category, which means that they can be revised, right? And that was actually the whole reason that they did this online rather than issuing these as, as, uh, magazine articles, uh, like in the Enzyme or whatever is because they, they want to be able to revise these. The people who are behind these are well aware that Historical information can change. Uh, we can get new information, new documentation that makes us reanalyze what we thought uh, about the past. That that happens. And the Joseph Smith Papers project is a prime example of bringing out information that makes us revise how we looked at the past. Um, you know, and and with most of the stuff with Joseph Smith papers, I'm not gonna, I won't say that they're like huge, sweeping, significant changes, but there's definitely been some things in there that make us say, oh, huh, I guess, I guess we'd always thought about that a little bit differently. And the neat thing is, is that all of those papers are going over to the quorum of twelve in the first presidency as well. Um, they're being reviewed by the quorum. Um, just a word about the Joseph Smith Papers project and how impactful this is. Uh, how important of a project this is. Uh, it, it's been going on since 2001, so it's, it's been on for quite a long, a long time, and it's probably got another 10 years on it. Uh, by the time that they're done with the overall project, there's going to be t- about two dozen volumes of of original documents, uh, either commissioned by Joseph Smith, written about Joseph Smith, or some that are even from himself. Uh, he didn't do a lot of writing himself. But uh, these documents are are really giving us a good, detailed, in-depth insight into what was going on during that time period. And and I think it's important to realize that our quorum of 12 and our first presidency are not historians. They're not trained in the discipline of history. Most of them are just like us. They grew up in the church. They've had administrative callings. They've been bishops. They've been stake presidents. They've been mission presidents. They've been in, in the 70s. Um, they've served faithfully and diligently in the church but that doesn't mean that they have a degree in history and and that they are experts in the field of Mormon studies so in many instances the information that gets sent over to them from the Joseph Smith papers there's been a lot of times where this is the first time that they've heard it too Um, and and that might be a revelation to some people because we have this expectation of our quorum members and I think it's important to go here uh, and address this. We have this expectation that they are somehow um, above uh, everybody else in knowledge and enlightenment, and that they have uh, s- somehow transcended um, their human natures when they were called into that position within the church. And I'm comforted, to be honest with you, knowing that they really aren't. They're 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 people just like us, and they are. I mean, yeah, they've dedicated a lifetime to service in church. So they've heard quite a bit of, uh, stuff and arguments and they've been made aware of a lot of things. But again, I mean, these are people who grew up on the same beliefs and the same narrative that most of us have. And so there's some things that are even challenging to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're losing their testimony over it. And I know that there are some people who argue that, that maybe they don't even have a testimony. And I think that's just ridiculous. Um, but they're definitely open to kind of reanalyzing history. And, and they, they have to be. Uh, the information age has changed the game for everybody, including them. And so they're going forward with faith that all of this is going to make sense and it's all going to line up just as much as most of us are.
0: Yeah, so you're saying essentially, and again, I'm not saying this is, I'm not saying you have an inside scoop to the top 15, but just, just your awareness or perception of what is going on, that for some of the 15, over the last, you know, three to five years may have been the first time they've encountered knowing that polyandry occurred, or having to kind of change their own narrative that Joseph used a stone and a half.
1: Well, and if it isn't the first time that, that they've been made aware of it, it's the first time that they've been made aware of the legitimacy of those claims. I think that it's quite possible that they might have heard it, but then just kind of dismissed it like most of us and said, well, you know, I don't really know. That could be taken out of context. That could be an anti-Mormon lie. That could be, I don't really know what the full story is behind it. But then when you start seeing the actual documentation, which, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's just a silly idea to think that our Apostles have um, thoroughly investigated all the documentation of, of history.
0: So with that in mind, and I'm, I just want to take this one step further. We obviously want to get to your website and we'll talk about that. Yeah. But if, if they're learning... The legitimacy of, for the first time, of polyandry, of 14-year-old wives, of stones and hats, and, and making the assumption, hey, the church is true, these men are prophets, seers, and revelators, they have had some kind of divine experience that, that their testimony rises above all of these things. At the same time, that obviously has to open one up to testing one's assumptions and saying, hey, I know these things are true, but everything else is up for discussion and we've got to kind of figure out how, how maybe the way we put these things in order, maybe that's different yeah. than what it is and, and be open to new interpretations.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to put words in their mouth. Uh, I want to be very cautious about making any assumptions about what they might be saying or thinking. But I think it's reasonable to, to believe that, um, that they are, are saying, yeah, we, we probably need to, um, at least address these things. I mean, that's obvious. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put out the Gospel Topics essays, where where they do feel they need to address it. Now, the Gospel Topics essays get some criticism from people for the way that they're uh, either you know defending um, the situation or minimizing or negating or ignoring certain aspects. So, I'm not saying that they're perfect. I'm not saying that uh, that that they are. Nuanced the way that people want them to be, or even as critical as I think some people want them to be, or as apologetic in terms of like we're sorry that we did this, as some people want them to be. Um, And and we have to we have to remember that the church's primary mission is to build faith and to um, not to send people into the throes of a faith crisis. Right. It's a and and also the church has. It's even silly to have to say this, but the church has a vested interest in itself and in its and and in the image that it presents itself as. I I think that should go without saying. And so sometimes I'm a little bit surprised when people expect the church to act like a third party university um, when it comes to how it frames its history. Of course, it's going to defend itself. Uh, Of course, it's going to couch things in a term that tries to minimize the negative possible impact of what's being discussed. Why would we ever expect anything different from the organization itself who's trying to put forward this message of the restoration and of the veracity of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God and of the truthfulness of the gospel? Why would we expect it to just say, okay, you guys win. <laughs> We're all a sham, right? That's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, they've got a defensive tone. In these essays. But at the same time, what is so vitally important is that they're addressing the elephant in the room, really for the first time. I mean, and and when I say for the first time, I have to put a caveat because most of these items have been discussed within scholarly circles for decades. I've gone clear back into the 1930s and 40s, and I've seen discussions around many of the topics that people feel are fresh wounds. They've been hashed and rehashed and rehashed and talked about For a long time. I mean, Fawn Brody published No Man Knows My History in 1945. That's a long time ago. And she put in most of the stuff that we grapple with into her biography of Joseph Smith. So these are not new topics by any stretch of the imagination. But the church has been in a mindset for a long time of just kind of ignore it. And and our number one mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our number one mission is to bring people to the gospel and, you know, the church is, is mostly vested in the idea of eternal families and of, uh, sacred ordinances that bind people together forever. And what does our history have to do with any of that? So I kind of, I, I kind of see the point that some of the quorum members have made in the past, such as Boyd K. Packer of, um, in his, uh, oh, what is it? The mantle is far greater than the intellect, um, speech. And, and that's a disturbing speech for me as a historian, but, I kind of see his point that we can get so caught up in the intellectualization of this that we do forget the spiritual benefits of living a, a religious life and of and particularly of of being a Mormon in the here and now today. Sometimes we get so caught up in the past that we that we kind of miss the point. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a huge bird walk away from, (laughs) from, from where I'm going in my website, because the website is obviously rooted in the past and, and trying to bring people a, uh, contextualized history.
0: Yeah. So let's, uh, maybe if you're comfortable, give people the URL and let's talk about what, uh, what issues and eras you talk about. So
1: the the URL is mormonismincontext.com. Made it very simple. Um, Right on the front page, you'll see the purpose of the website. And just to quote it briefly, it says, The purpose of this guided study is not to argue the accuracy of facts or ideas presented in the critical or apologetic resources. Uh, Rather, it's to provide additional context that is not typically found. This is not a defense of Mormonism. It's not a defense of its claims. Rather, it's an exploration of a religious tradition that emerged during a particularly vibrant period of religious activity in America. This is the key. Troublesome details and aspects do occur in the history of the moon faith, and it is my contention that they should not be ignored or dismissed. However, this is also the story of a people with deeply held convictions and who believed passionately that the miraculous was not only possible, but experienced in their daily lives. So I'm trying to offer a balanced perspective Yes, we do need to be honest and say, yeah, there are some troublesome issues. There are questions that are left unanswered. But at the same time, we need to recognize the journey of faith. And also, I hope, recognize that the issues that Mormonism has are definitely not exclusive to Mormonism itself. Every religious group has had this process of, of coming into itself of... Of coming of age, so to speak, and and wrestling with its past, wrestling with its history, trying to make sense of its origins. Mormonism is a young religion and it's just starting to go through uh um, some of those some of those questions. And it's been spurred on by the information age that we're in. I put in a quote from historian Davis Bitten that I really liked. He said quote, history that neither defames nor hides defects is the kind of history or at least one kind of history we need in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Davis Bitton was the assistant church historian when Leonard Arrington was the church historian. For him to have said that, I think, speaks volumes. Leonard Arrington was a church historian in the mid-1970s. So even back in the mid-1970s, during what we now call the Camelot era of history. and The reason they called it the Camelot era was because it was an era of unprecedented witness about our history. Uh, and Leonard Arrington, being the first trained historian who was uh, put into the position of church historian, really did a lot to, to try to uh, create a social history of Mormonism that crossed not just um, ecclesiastical lines, but went um, more into the university realm or historical association realm. Uh, he tried to legitimize the field of Mormon history. And, and out of that is born what we call New Mormon history. And New Mormon history, its purpose was really to kind of bracket the questions about faith, the, the, the faith claims, whether or not they really happened. For example, uh, new, a New Mormon history approach to the First Vision would probably bracket whether or not the First Vision actually occurred and would focus more on the details that we know from the different documents that account for the first vision and what we can take out of those documents without ever really going down the road of of challenging whether the vision actually occurred or not. Um, This is, for some people, that feels like a cop-out. For others, it feels like a responsible approach. Um, For others, it's distressing. And I think for the quorum of 12 at that time, it was distressing to have... The church historian publishing um, these documents, which seem rather challenging, without offering a defense of them afterwards. So the church responded, um, perhaps a bit in a knee-jerk reaction, and shut it down. Uh, Leonard Arrington was released as the church historian, wasn't even given a vote of thanks. It's actually rather tragic. He was pretty much given the boot, and he fled up to Utah State University, and he took his documents with him, and they're still housed up at Utah State University, and The church, over the next several years, transferred all of the historical documentation down to Brigham Young University, created the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute, and really locked it down for researchers. Um, The only people during that period that had access to the documentation were faculty of BYU and people who were approved researchers. Now, one of those faculty of BYU was Michael Quinn, um, and Michael Quinn had unfettered access. To the documentations, and he wrote notes like a madman, and out of that came Mike Quinn's uh, volumes, uh, Mormon hierarchy and extensions of power, <clears throat> and also his forthcoming uh, book, which will be on the church fi- history of church finances. So, you know, even even though they had shut it down, they ended up creating <laughs> Mike Quinn <laughs> um, out of it. So, you know, some somewhat of a backfire, but I think it's it's key to recognize that even at that time period. Davis Bitten, assistant church historian, is saying we need history that doesn't try to defame the church, but it also doesn't try to hide the defect. Just we just need to acknowledge it and and say, Okay, yes, there are some issues here. Um that doesn't mean that we all need to go jump off a bridge, right? We can be civil and be responsible grown ups about this and we can try to put things into their context. So uh, just finishing what I wrote here, as a social historian, my study of Mormonism is from the perspective of a social movement, a story filled with human drama, complexity, and faith. Um, I argue that ultimately it's the flexibility and adaptability of Mormonism that kept it alive. Um, maybe that's a little too much of a secularized approach for some people's tastes. Maybe they would say, well, what about modern revelation? But that's what modern revelation is, is adaptability and flexibility to receiving new insight, new revelation, new direction. And ultimately, that's what allowed Mormonism to grow, thrive, and survive, because it could adapt to its different environments, to its different uh, geographic settings, to its size growth, to the pressures that are coming on it from the outside. It could adapt to those things because it had a flexible model of revelation as opposed to a rigid model, saying that everything is is finite, everything's been written, and it's a closed canon. Um, that's ultimately what allowed Mormonism to thrive, whereas most religious experiments that happened during that t- same time frame of what we call the antebellum pre-Civil War era, most of them didn't survive for much more than 50, 75 years. Now, there are some uh, groups that did, um, the Adventists, are, are doing extremely well. In fact, actually the Adventists, now there's more Adventists in the world than there are Latter-day Saints. Um, but they are a completely different church. I guess some people would argue our church is completely different too from its origins, but they are uh, a 180 degree turnaround from where their origins were, where they were a strictly millenarian group that believed that the world was going to end in 1843 or 1844 uh, under William Miller. They, Completely changed their model into something different, and and they've been quite successful. Um, and there's other groups. The disciples of Christ came out of um, came out of the Restoration movement uh, that took place. So you know there are antebellum religious upstarts that still exist. But I think Mormonism has been a particularly vital one in America. In fact, I think most Christians would agree that Mormonism really is kind of its own unique, different religious tradition. Now, we we as Latter-day Saints don't like to hear that because we like to think of ourselves as Christians as much as anybody else. And I argue that we are, but I think though that our brand of Christianity is really a new, pretty unique tradition, uh, when you compare it with Protestantism or Catholicism. So the fact that that survived is, is pretty impressive. And I think that when you look at how and why, uh, Mormonism not only survived, but ultimately thrived in a country that wasn't very friendly to it. Um, and really, it wasn't very friendly towards the country either for a long time. So I've broken Mormonism into, in context down into a series of lessons. Now, before anybody jumps into the lessons, um, I'd invite them to read over the purpose of why I put it together and also the course materials and the format of study uh, before they hop into the lessons. Uh, the course materials that I chose, um, I, I tried to choose material that was, I thought, timely, up-to-date, intellectually honest, um, took a fairly middle-ground approach on Mormonism, wasn't trying to defend it, wasn't trying to criticize it. Um, That also was a sweeping look, something that looked from its very foundation and and origins all the way up into current uh, topics within the Church. And, And let me tell you, it's extremely difficult to find one volume uh, that covers the entire history of Mormonism, the entire almost 200-year history, and and does it in a way that is informative, um, in a way that that is not afraid of confronting issues, but in a way that maintains a respectful tone, and furthermore, in a way that's reader-friendly to the public. Um, it's easy to find hundreds of Mormon history books that are on a specific topic and that are four or five hundred pages long and that each page has a about a half a page of footnotes. But most people aren't going to read that. And, you know, this really gets into the methodology of why I put this website together and, and why I chose the sources that I did was I'm really trying to gear this as a, a way to reach people who, who aren't interested in reading a whole bunch of stuff and, and who probably aren't going to pick up Mike Quinn's books or, you know, pick up some of the... Might not even read Rough Stone Rolling by um, Richard Bushman. Uh, that might even be too boring or too long or too dry for them. So I'm, I'm trying to appeal to people who are saying, okay, you know, a 350 page book without a whole bunch of footnotes, I can deal with that as long as it's like written in a way that doesn't feel like I'm being talked down to by some academic professor. And, and so I found, um, the criteria was probably best met by Matthew Bowman's, the Mormon people, the making of an American faith. Now he published this in, uh, 2012, um, and we've had some pretty important things happen since 2012. For example, the Gospel Topics essays have been released uh, over the past couple of years. And we've had a kind of a rise up of, of Mormon uh, feminism since 2012 as far as just activism. Um, so some of those really current issues uh, aren't going to be addressed in, uh, in, in Bowman's book. But I think that taking us from the origins of the church from 1830 up to about 2011 uh, gives us a lot of insight into the, the dynamic changes that the church has made in each um, kind of segment of its, of its history. And I like the way that he broke things down into time frame segments and that each time frame was focused on kind of a specific transitionary theme within the church. And I agree with his transitionary points. Um, so also it's, because it's published by a popular press, it's easy to find. Uh, you can find it at public libraries. You can pick it up off of the Amazon.com, uh, Kindle version for like nine bucks. It's not an expensive college text. Uh, some of these history books that I have, I mean, I've got the Anthony Ivan's diary sitting here and there it's $175 for the book. Uh, this this book is something that's you know for even the hardcover you can find for like fifteen bucks. So
0: I wa- Let me throw a little, uh, let me throw a little point in too. I just was at, uh, we have a store in town called Ollie's. It's a, it's a discount store. They buy, uh, overstock from other companies and they had about 20 vol- 20 books of, uh, Matthew Bauman's, uh, the Mormon people and it was a dollar each. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's not any knock on Matthew Bauman. The book is well written and it sold very well, but somewhere, some company overstocked him. And so all the Ollie stores bought them up. Yeah.
1: No, it's wonderful. And, and, and Matthew Bowman will be fine hearing that. I even wrote on my, Page, you can pick it up for a couple bucks used from you know quite a few used booksellers or um, out here dis will sometimes stock them I went down to uh, probably one one of the the more well-known Mormon uh, history booksellers um, out here in 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 Utah and Salt Lake City benchmark books and they had it sitting on their table for five bucks so it's it's a book that again I wanted to make sure that it was something people could actually find and that they could find quickly or that they could buy a Kindle version and start reading it immediately. This isn't the kind of book that requires it to be a physical copy for you to be able to get the, glean the information out of it that I think is useful. So that's that was the first thing that I chose. The second thing that I chose, I think that documentaries are accessible for people. A lot of people who don't like sitting down reading, who find themselves kind of falling asleep at reading, um, will be more than happy to watch a well-made documentary on PBS about some historical aspect. Now, there haven't been a lot of really good documentaries made about the history of Mormonism. Um, there's been some documentaries about very specific periods, and then there's a lot of what I call kind of hagiography documentaries. They're documentaries that are very faith-promoting, um, that are done by either by the Church or by uh, very faithful members who um, are definitely framing things in a, in a way to build faith. And I don't discredit that. That's That's fine. Uh, but I'm really trying to stick more scholarly and have that detached academic tone, uh, in this. And so the, the PBS, uh, American experience documentary, The Mormons, that was written and directed by Helen Whitney, a non-Mormon. And it was released in 2007 on PBS as a, uh, two-part series. Each segment was two hours long. So it's a total of four hours it is probably still the best documentary, I think, uh, that we have on, on Mormonism, Um mostly because of the, the people she pulled in, uh, to this documentary. Do you remember this documentary?
0: Yeah, it's got Terrell Givens in it and, uh, uh, Michael Quinn does, uh, some, some yeah. talking on it as well. There's several scholars Bush, in
1: it. Richard Bushman and
0: uh, Kath- Phil Barlow, I think, is in there.
1: Uh, I, I don't remember Phil being in there, but Kathleen Flake was in there and, and you've got, you've got several prominent scholars. You've, Will Bagley is in there. Um, so you've got both people who have been known for criticizing the church in the past, and you've got people who have been known for, uh, defending the church. I mean, I think, you know, Terrell Givens kind of rides that middle road, but he, you know, he's definitely on the the side of, of supporting the church. So, you know, he's got, uh, he's probably got more screen time than anybody on there. Um, but I thought she did a great job. She even got a few of the Quorum of twelve members in there. She talked to President Packer. She kind of <laughs> asked him about his some of the statements that he's made about uh, homosexuals and uh, feminists and intellectuals being perceived as the biggest threat to the church. And you know, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, "Well, if I said it, if it's in print, then I must have said it." Um, Elder Oaks is in there, so you know, I think that she did a really good job of of capturing a diverse voice uh, on the subject, and she wasn't afraid to go down the same road that I'm going down on this website of, of addressing some of the issues. Now, th- again, this was 2007, and so for the past seven, eight years, we've had a lot of things happen in the church. So is it a little dated? Yeah, you know, it is. It, it would be nice to get a refresher of it and kind of catch us up to speed over the past seven, eight years. But nonetheless, I still think it's an important uh, documentary series. And so what I did was I actually embedded the this documentary, each section of the documentary, into the lesson. So a person doesn't have to go out and buy this or rent it. Uh, they can just click play right on the lesson section and watch it. And each segment uh, is you know, about 20 to 30 minutes um, for somebody to watch that corresponds with the lesson and the, the time frame that I've identified in Matthew Bowman's book, for instance. Um, so they all line up with each other. Uh, and then the the next uh, source that I chose is the LDS Church Gospel Topics Essays. And and I did this, and I want to make this clear to listeners. I did this not because I'm saying this is the actual answer and believe these um, and all of your problems will go away. No, that's not it at all. I, I included them because I think it's important to understand how the church has responded to some of the more troubling aspects of its history. That doesn't mean I endorse how it's responded to it. There are several areas that I personally would have either worded differently or that I just don't agree with. Um, In in my own research and studies, I don't think that they did a good job of handling some of the the issues, but I applaud them in many other areas as well. So I think it's important to, to let the church have a voice in this and say, this is what we've endorsed as a response to this. Um, But I want people to use a little critical thinking on it. I want people to weigh what they're reading from the church against what they're reading in Matthew Bowman's book and what they're seeing in the PBS uh, documentary. And I want them to think about these things and to think about how the church is responding to these things. And if they are being defensive, I want people to kind of ask well, you know, where are they being defensive and how important is it that that they defend themselves on this? Um, So that those are the main sources then and then i also put in other articles throughout the lessons uh that uh, are by respected historians some of them are specific to mormonism some of them are not um i would say half of them have nothing to do with mormonism per se but have to do with what's going on in america as a larger religious landscape during these these specific periods um how is mormonism a response to the rise of evangelical christianity in the pre-Civil War years? How did, in later period, in the 1940s to the 1950s, with the rise of the Christian right and Christian fundamentalism, how did Mormonism respond to that? What aspects of it did it absorb? What aspects of it did it reject? So these are articles that are um, well-vetted articles that I really want people to read and to think about How does how does Mormon history reflect what's going on? Um, in, in these large, and that's where I think the real the real power of this is, is in weighing what's going on in Mormonism with what's going on in the rest of America, because that's where I really think that you begin to understand that Mormonism is responding to what's going on in the larger social context in many of these cases.
0: Awesome. Let's uh, let's jump into a couple of these chapters and just, or these lessons, I should say. You phrased them as lessons, and I think that that they should be understood that way. It's a chance for us to kind of learn the context of these yeah. these various issues. It's a syllabus, um, really. If,
1: if you right. think about it, this is this is a syllabus that you might find as like an undergraduate um, taking signing up for a history course. Uh, I put about as much work into it, except I'm not asking anybody for any papers
0: <laughs> and I'm not giving them any exams.
1: Okay. But, you know, <laughs> okay. but but this is really kind of, you know, the, the content of it was really kind of geared towards an undergraduate level um, as far as how much information they're going to be immersed in.
0: Gotcha. Let's, uh, let's begin with lesson two. And again, there's ten of them. Uh, I don't want to go through each of them because I want to leave something for, for the listeners to kind of dive into and, and hopefully even the two or three that we talk about that they'll, they'll go into those because we're only going to hit the surface of them. But lesson two is on the first vision in the Book of Mormon. And and let me ask it this way. What is your hoped takeaway that one who, who delves into this lesson, reads and watches the material, thinks about the, the context that you've given them? What are you hoping they take away from uh, the first vision and from uh, the Book of Mormon coming forth? I,
1: ho- I hope that people are going to take away the environment that visions were happening in, that uh, visions, uh, it wasn't like nobody was claiming to have a vision and the heavens were closed for centuries and then all of a sudden Joseph Smith has the first vision in America, um, that this was a time period when there were Quote unquote prophets, self-proclaimed prophets that were traversing the American landscape and who were claiming new revelation. Um, it's important for people to, to understand, uh, the, the role that Puritanism played in forming this religious identity in America that, uh, that even as early as what we call the pilgrims who came over believed that America was this divinely appointed landscape that they were going to go and build the city of God in. And then this millenarian spirit creeps in, and by millenarianism I mean the the belief that the world was coming to a close, uh, a swift close in in, in their case. And, and this idea that we're in this wrap-up phase, and so new prophecies and new revelation and, and new ideas are coming out of this. This new country, this, this new experimentation in, in government is also fostering new experimentations in religion. Um, and I, and I want readers to understand that this is the environment that Joseph Smith emerges right in the middle of. This is what we term the second great awakening of America. The first great awakening really being the Puritan days. Uh, and the revivalism that was happening during that time period, and one thing that that doesn't get discussed too much in here, but is the importance around um, these industrial revolutions that were happening, and what industrial revolutions do to a people um, to kind of uh, make them uh, reject the, uh, the the kind of the machinery that's going on, and 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 try to seek for the spiritual. Uh, in a way. And so, and again, that, this doesn't, that doesn't get covered a whole lot in here because I don't want to get way over people's, uh, level, you know, comprehension level at this point. But it's, it's not, I guess, without irony that the first great awakening happens around the time of what we call the, the great industrial revolution of England. The second great awakening happens really around America's industrial, early industrial revolution. Um, so you've got these questions that people are asking of what is the meaning of America, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of family? What's the meaning of these Victorian morals and ethics that we have? This is what's, what's bearing out on the frontier religious landscape. Um, it's, it's a hotbed. And I think that we see that in Joseph Smith's first vision. He's in the history that, that ended up being canonized. You know, he talks about that that's the reason that he started questioning things was because of the contest of ideas that was going on. So I think it's important for us to look at that contest of ideas a little bit more closely so we can understand some of the things he was responding to in that. I also think it's important for people who may have not been aware to know that there are multiple versions that Joseph Smith wrote down over a period of time uh, dealing with his first vision, and that the first version that we have doesn't come until after the church was already founded. It really comes in about 1832, when Joseph Smith was starting to write his own personal history, really for the first time that we know of. And then there's several others after that. There's about four that that he is really in charge of, and then there's others that that uh, other people did. As, a, as as kind of Joseph told me this information, and so you know those other ones deviate pretty substantially because they're not getting their details uh, you know quite as close. Joseph's own versions also differ um, from the very first one that we see, which was a very short kind of personal. And and you had the conversation with uh, Steve Harper, who's really kind of the expert. In, uh, in Joseph Smith's first visions here, so I'm not going to get too in-depth in that. But we do see this progressive change in how Joseph Smith viewed this epiphany experience that he had or this this theosis uh, that he had. Um, and so, you know, that that needs to be addressed and not defended, just this is the reality, that there are these differing versions and that they do say different things from each other and take it for what it is. Um, I'm not going to try to apologize for that. So... Bowman's book talks about it. The segment of the Mormons that I that I put in talks about it, uh, and the Gospel Topics essays, um, the First Vision accounts talks about it. Talks about the different. Uh, in fact, even links the original copies of of the visionary experiences that were written down. Um, for the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, I think it's that the big question is, is how it was translated at this point. Anyway, um, later on, we'll get into maybe some of the questions about whether there's any evidence to support its claims as a history. But at this stage uh, in lesson two, it's more just about how we depict Joseph Smith having narrated and translated uh, the Book of Mormon, Um, which to a lot of people who grew up in the church, we have a very simplified view of Joseph Smith leaning over the golden plates and seeing these words etched right on the leaves and reading them in English to a scribe, Oliver Cowdery or Martin Harris or his wife. Who would then write them down, and that's our view of the composition of the Book of Mormon. Um, it hasn't helped that that's how our artwork has depicted it. <laughs> um, but when we look at the documentation, that's not how it was depicted historically. Uh, it was depicted as as a little bit more of kind of a shamanistic type event. It, it had this component of folk magic in it, where Joseph Smith is using seer stones and looking in, shielding light by looking in his hat. At them, and you know, Martin Harris at least claimed that Joseph Smith saw words emerge on them, and that he would speak those words out, and they would be written down by the scribe. Uh, so that that's brought up in in the video and in Bowman's book, and also it's brought up in uh, the Gospel Topic essay, um, Book of Mormon translation. So you know, readers are going to get the same information kind of three times from three different perspectives, uh, and none of these. Well, I guess that the Gospel Topics essays is. Trying to defend it a little bit more than the other two sources. But I think that by the end of this lesson, readers are going to be pretty knowledgeable on these two particular weighty issues that seem to get thrown around a lot. Now, the final piece of this is, uh, the Donald Scott's article, Evangelism as a Social Movement. And I, and I think that it's, I hope that readers will take the time to read that article. All the articles that I chose are about magazine length. I didn't want to link academic Journal length articles, which are sometimes 30, sometimes 60 pages long. Most of these are just going to be a few pages long. But I think it gives a really good insight into, um, again, what was going on in the American landscape at this time that was creating such religious frenzy. And, and if people don't go to that, uh, article, then I think that they're going to miss out on some important context. So I hope that, I hope they do.
0: So you talk obviously about the first vision. You talk about the Book of Mormon. You give this context. And as you're pointing out, each of these articles are, are crucial if you're going to really grab the context of what's really going on. Because it is it is so easy within our faith to just listen to what's said during the three-hour block and feel like this simple narrative that we're told, it's just perfect, it's beautiful, it fits together well, and to walk away thinking that's all there is. I, I think you've done a great job adding this context, not just with the Bowman's book, not just with the PBS uh, uh, documentary, but also with some of these other articles that you add. I want to jump to lesson eight, which is on correlation, uh, maybe put into perspective for us uh, the historical shift that we've made from 1830 to the 1930s, 1980, yeah. with correlation kind of taking uh, taking hold, and then maybe bring us to present in the way that maybe perhaps we've released a little bit of that. I want to get your thoughts on if we've maybe begun to kind of turn around and head back the other way a little mm-hmm. bit, and, and what you make of correlation mm-hmm. within the church.
1: So huge, huge
0: sweeping shift between 1830 and 1960 when
1: correlation, um, emerges within the church. And really correlation emerged far before that uh, correlation. The correlation committee was created. A lot, a lot of people don't know this, but it was created in like 1905 by James Talmage. Um, but it wasn't really a centrally used organization, uh, not to the degree that it was in the 1950s and 60s by Harold B. Lee and David O. McKay. It became a, a really a, a driving force behind the church. But, you know, to, to just give you a little historical context on this shift towards this, um, you've got a church that comes out of obscurity at the beginning of the 20th century. It was a Utah-exclusive sect. It was really separate from the United States in a lot of ways. It didn't achieve statehood until 1896. And we've got a lot of immigrants who are coming into uh, into Utah during this time period. And so really, the population growth is pretty stunning in Utah from 1846 on up to about the turn of the century. And it only you know gets larger uh, after that. But these were Mormon converts who were uprooting their lives and their families to come move to Utah because this was designated as the gathering place by Brigham Young. The turn of the 20th century, we reverse that strategy. Utah is no longer the exclusive gathering place. Now you build up the stakes wherever you're at, wherever you're planted is where you grow. Um, so now you've got, for the first time, really this shift towards an international church as opposed to the idea that the world was going to come to an end and that Utah was going to end up being kind of the city of the saints and that eventually they would reclaim Missouri as well. Um, that changes. And a lot of that changes... Because Utah comes into the United States and to, to achieve that, it had to give up some rather distressing practices. Plural marriage, it had to disavow it. Now that was a rough process and, and I've got in, in the lesson that, lessons that precede this, I talk about that transitionary process with plural marriage and the church has addressed it as well in their gospel topics essays of, of the winding down of pro-marriage and how kind of messy that was. It wasn't this clean cut 1890, Wilford Woodruff says it's over and it's done. No, not at all. This was an ongoing struggle for a long time, leading to, um, multiple arrests and people going underground and hiding in Utah. And it's really a, a, really a terrifying time period for the church. But finally, in, uh, about 1904, 1905, really during Uh, This big national attention that's happening on on the church during the seating of Senator Reed Smoot um, becomes front page news for everybody. Here we have a Mormon apostle who is going to be seated as a senator of the United States, retaining both positions. Here you have the combination of church and state. And this is distressing to people in the United States, especially because he's a Mormon. And Mormons are vile, and they are they are polygamists, and they steal young women and marry them to old, perverted men. This is the American image at that time of Mormons. And now you've got this Mormon apostle, who people say is a, a disciple of, of their version of Jesus Christ, who's going to be seated as a senator and listening to his prophet. And no, no, we can't have this. So he goes through a three-year battle defending himself, as to why he should be allowed, permitted to be seated as the elected senator of Utah. And they bring in Joseph F. Smith to this, um, to to these highly public hearings that the Senate is holding, ask him very pointed questions about the temple. Um, A lot of people, you know, don't realize that the temple at that time, part of the liturgy was declaring that we would ultimately have vengeance on the United States for the death of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. That, Fortunately no longer exists, but at the time that was something that the Mormons felt betrayed by the United States over Joseph and Hiram's death. They felt betrayed ever since Missouri. So this became, this became part of it. So that was questioned and the nature of revelation was questioned and whether or not Joseph F. Smith would feel that he's receiving revelation on behalf of the state if he had a senator seated and just all these, these big questions. So really, you see the church transitioning at this point and becoming more mainstream, more American, presenting itself as we are just another Protestant sect in a way. Now, we have our unique beliefs. We're not disavowing those. We have the temple. We, we believe in what we do there. Uh, we believe in the nature of eternal families. Uh, we, we believe in these very fundamental things, the Book of Mormon is Scripture. But other than that, we are not weird. We don't do... Crazy things that 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 were being accused of, and I would say from that time point forward, the church made a concerted effort to make itself more American, more mainstream, more of an ideal type of patriot and and American citizen. So much to the point that by the time we get to the 1950s and 60s, we really are the Aussie and Harriet religion. Um, the leave-it-to-beaver model when it comes to families. In fact, we're so switched at this point that we um, now the image of the Mormon family is the nuclear family, whereas before it was the polygamous group. Now it's the mom and the dad with the stay-at-home mom and a bunch of kids. Um, And the church is increasingly seen as this patriotic force, as a growing international empire, as this corporate kind of religion, uh, that's acceptable, that's safe, and this is really what you see correlation growing out of. Um, and, and really it was a, of necessity because the church was growing at this point across the globe, and it had a lot of different divisions, uh, different programs. The Relief Society was run independently, the um, mutual Improvement associations were run independently. You had different magazines that were run by different departments. And all these different departments didn't really coordinate with each other. So in some cases, you would have duplicate information being printed and separate budgets going everywhere and no accountability. So I, I understand why the, uh, why David O. McKay and Harold B. Lee, who were the two primary driving forces, why they felt it was necessary to kind of bring everybody together. And to say, no, we need to be, uh, we need to be more frugal with our spending. We need to be more in touch with each other as far as what we're putting out materials wise, uh, what kind of support we're offering, what kind of welfare support we're having. But on top of that, on top of just church organizational stuff, they really took this shift where everything needed to be focused on what families do at home. So also during this time, uh, they tried to start consolidating some of the meetings that were happening at local levels, so that people weren't constantly going to church every single day. Um, that they had more time at home. They really started pushing family home evening for the first time, and saying you need to be at home on Monday evenings with your family, teaching your family, your children gospel principles. So there were there were a lot, there were a number of initiatives that all corresponded. With correlation that really bring, I I think you can say bring the church into its current context of how we understand the church to exist and operate today, the kind of tone that we see in the church, the kind of business-like model that we have, the multiple investments that the church has, the multiple divisions and departments the church has, the hierarchical structure that the church has, um, and the current programs of home teaching and visiting teaching and family home evening that we stress. All of these was born out of that, out of that same time period. So sometimes I think we can get really caught up in the 19th century. And if you really want to understand the church today and what kind of an organization it is today, what kind of impact it has into our lives today, I think you really need to go back to this period, to the 1940s, 1950s, maybe as far back as the 1920s. Um, but this is really where you see the, the contemporary church emerge and, and in that sense, I'd say that we really are different from what the church was in Nauvoo. Now, you know, we still have some of the important tenets. We still have temples as a central aspect of our religious experience. Uh, the idea of eternally being sealed. We still have our unique religious scripture um, with the Book of Mormon, with the Doctrine and Covenants. The Pearl Great Price came about a little bit later, about 1880. Uh, but still, it's you know, it's a 19th century text that we haven't gone away from. So we still have these core things, Joseph Smith being a prophet. And that we believe the line of succession then went to Brigham Young and on through the Latter-day Saint prophets. Um, but culturally speaking, our church is almost the opposite of what it was in the 19th century. In the 19th century, it was a fringe movement. It was a millenarian communalistic sect that was trying to live the united order and and that was at odds with its neighbors and was rising up its own military power. Uh, and now you see a church that is almost so enmeshed into the American mainstream that it's almost inseparable, uh, particularly Christian conservative mainstream and kind of the conservative right of, of American politics. Um, and that all comes out of what's going on in the Cold War era. Not what's going on in Joseph Smith's time.
0: Awesome. I uh, I want to ask you a few other things. So I want to kind of finish with uh, with the website this way. You end up with lesson ten, which is you're kind of drawing this conclusion. I just want to share a thought, and if you want to add to it, feel free to. Uh, I look at what this these lessons, who they're designed for, and my first thought is that I think the primary audience I see for this. Are those who are just beginning to kind of delve into some of these issues and may, may just be beginning to be thrown for kind of a loop. Yeah. And, and I, th- and I think you recognize that as well, but I, but I would add that I think that would miss the boat. I think you've also intended this for those who, who maybe are much deeper into struggling and will see this as, oh, I'm already beyond learning these things, but in reality, they're really missing the context even though they think they've got yeah. it. Whether, whether it's the apologist who, or the, the member of the ward who defends the church to the nth degree and, and just takes the, you know, the faith positive answer every single time, or whether it's the critic who thinks they understand the issues inside and out, uh, and thinks that uh, that members who stay are simply naive at this point? I think, I think they both would gain something from looking into this. As yeah, well. I,
1: I hope it reaches a, a fairly broad audience. Now, I, I agree that it was it was really intended for the person who doesn't know where to turn next. This is the person who came across some damaging information, maybe found some critical resources, hopped over to the uh, apologetics, weren't satisfied by that answer, ended up kind of digging deeper into the critical sources and now they just it's just a mess for them. So this is really that's really who it was targeted towards. But at the same time I think you're right and I hope that there will be people who are you know pretty satisfied with themselves, I guess you can say, um, and their conclusions that they've drawn, whether it's critical or whether it's defensive. I hope that they will be able to to look at this and say, ah, oh, you know, yeah, I mean there are some Additional things here that we kind of need to take into account, and also I hope that that people will move beyond just the period between 1830 and 1844, um, because that seems to be where we put in a tremendous amount of our energy. Is those 14 years that Joseph Smith was leading the church and and founding the church, and rightly so because that's where all of our you know most innovative theological and, and our our practices stemmed from so I understand why that is such why that is the key event uh, the, the key period but I really want people to move past that once they felt that they've spent some time in it and I want them to understand that the church has emerged has evolved has transitioned uh, through the several decades that that follow that and how it's continued to respond to American society and culture through those times. And really what I really want to bring people to is an understanding of why we are the way we are now and, and understand that not all of that has to do with going way back, which is, you know, what I just hashed about the last lesson. But, you know, I think that when you look at the contemporary church today, yeah, I mean, we have some social tensions that are currently existing. We have the question of how do we, how do we discuss and how do we treat homosexuality? We've got the question of feminism and and how certain women are are dissatisfied with their relationship with the church and they're becoming more vocal about it through online mediums and also through action. So you've got some things that are important questions that we need to address now. Um, I don't think that there are things that are easily resolved, and I don't particularly have an answer for either of those Um I have my own political leanings but you know I don't I don't have a prescription for the church on those on those items but I think that if you look beyond the social issues what you really see is uh the church today is an international well striving to be an international community really struggling to find an international identity um you know we, for for a long time we've really exported Utah Mormon identity throughout the rest of the world this very American suburban middle-class conservative Christian identity that we've transplanted into different places of the world. And that doesn't always take root in different cultures and different societies who have different value systems, and 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 particularly those cultures that have struggled with colonization in the past, British colonization. They really have a hard time with accepting this kind of colonial image of this white American church saying, this is what you need to be. And, and rightly, so, so we're struggling with that identity at the same time we're also struggling with the information age and with the unfettered access that people have now to all sorts of of opinions and documentary records and and a lot of different conflicting ideas out there now i'll I'll separate those by the hemisphere, and i 'll say that in the southern hemisphere, so latin america africa uh, you've got more the struggle of integrating into an international community. And then in the Northern Hemisphere, so North America and uh, Europe, Northern Europe, uh, Canada, you've got the struggle of technology and this information age. And the church is really kind of, has to work both fronts at the same time. We're losing members in the developed uh, nations and in the heavily information saturated areas. Uh, kids are growing up not interested in church they're losing their religious desires. They're not switching to any other church. They're just dropping out. It's just not relevant to them. And then in the new, newly developing areas, and I don't mean that economically or culturally, I just mean for the church developing areas. Um, you know, you're getting a lot of interest, but you're also getting the, uh, this is a terrible word for it, but the baggage that comes from people coming from different cultures and traditions and ideas and what do they retain versus what do they leave behind. So, you know, I, I I feel for the church right now in trying to take on these two battles. At the center of this, we're pushing this message that really narrowed down is Joseph Smith was a prophet. He translated scripture that was given by God, and and that the most important thing that we have to offer is the restored church with its temples and the idea that families can exist for eternity and the idea that you can link yourself back with your ancestral roots and that you can seal yourselves together with your family so that by the time that, that we do arrive in the hereafter that the relationships that we have here on earth are intact um in the hereafter and that this is the great plan of salvation and this is really what makes mormonism unique in its in its claims and so i ended the lessons i think rightly so concluding on the temple um because it really is in my opinion the central message that the church is offering to the world today but I think it's important to look at the temple and at the history, of, and not be afraid of, of of looking at some of the even the challenging aspects of the temple, where it emerged from, uh, what kind of influences uh, Joseph Smith might have had from Freemasonry, if at all. What are the connections? What are the differences? I think we need to not be so afraid of that, um, and and that's that's what I'm hoping to get across here is both the sincerity of the saints and what they truly feel is their mission in life which is to offer eternal salvation and eternal relationships an eternal connection and at the same time to recognize the social influence that goes on um with the creation and the development and the changing of this of this theology um we can't get caught up in the idea that the temple is so sacred that it has never changed and that it can never be discussed yes there are aspects of it that i would never discuss Um, because I have made a personal commitment that I won't disclose those things, you know, and and not because they're weird or because they're, you know, (laughs) um, that they would inflame the rest of the United States or anything like that. But just because, you know, we've, we've made a commitment, those of us who, uh, are temple going members to just not discuss those things. And so I respect that. But at the same time, there are things that we can't discuss. And 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 we need to be okay with that. And I was I was actually rather impressed with the recent video that the church uh published uh about sacred temple clothing. And they they showed the garments that members wear in and, and they did it in a very tactful way and they discussed the history of religious vestment and they kind of contextualized it into to how clothing is has played an important role for uh, religious people for centuries, and I think they did a really good job. So I included that as a link. I think people should watch that. Um, I included a couple links that surround the question of Mormonism and Freemasonry, uh, one from the perspective of Freemason, one from the perspective of somebody who has written for BYU for the Encyclopedia of, of Mormonism. So his is going to be a little bit more like the Gospel Topics essays. It's going to be a little bit more on the defensive side. Um, and then I finished it with uh, an article that I love called God versus the Internet. And the winner is dot 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 um, because he talks about he uses Mormonism as his case study for how the internet has changed the uh, conversation on religious history and and I think he did a really good job of of kind of summarizing why we are where we are now and why all of this information seems to be kind of coming forth now during this during this time frame and why it's coming so quickly and why people are being so challenged by it um, you know we need to remember that. Before the ages of the Internet, if people wanted to get information about anything, they had to go down to a library or they had to figure out which books to buy. And they would oftentimes spend years going through sources. And now it's just it's it's all right at your fingertips and it's all immediate. And that just changes the conversation. Um, so I think he did a great job in that. And that's kind of what I what I finish it up at. at. But I but I want to emphasize here something that Claudia Bushman uh, said, Richard Bushman's wife. And I put this in my little preface to the section. She said, history is still important, but because of the longstanding belief in current and ongoing revelation from God to modern day prophets, Mormons are less fettered by their past than other groups. They dwell on the heroism of founders and remain loyal to their prophet Joseph Smith, but their beliefs allow for sharp departures from past practices. I think that's a key that we need to remember, um, because we can get so caught up in the historical church that sometimes we lose track of the idea of the developing church. And I guess to couch it in devotional terms of the restored church and the idea of the restoration not being completed, the idea of the restoration as an ongoing process. Furthermore, the idea of a restoration as an ongoing wrestle between us and society and even us and our God at times, um, that we're all working through this together. Um, building the kingdom of god one crude brick at a time. And and I hope that people will walk away with that appreciation. We need to
0: we, yeah, uh, we need to address
1: we need to address the issues. There is no question about it. And we yeah. need to just be honest about that. But I hope that people can retain a sense of value.
0: Yeah, you hit this idea of, of continuing revelation, right? There's many great and wonderful things yet to be revealed in the kingdom of God. And, and yet sometimes we fight so hard to, to white knuckle what we have from the past that we, we don't open ourselves up to the idea that there still might be more truths that come and those new truths might change that, that past perspective.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that a departure from the past doesn't necessarily mean that we're always caving into social pressure. It could. We, we can be open to that, right? I mean, the, the change of, of the, uh, priesthood restriction was part of its social pressure? Sure. I've, I have no problem saying that, but I think there is more to it that, that you need to look into as well. Um, it doesn't always mean that it's insincere just because it's coming from, the questions are coming from an external source.
0: Right, right. Fighting against change might be the astray that we're always trying to keep the church from going into. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And and I often find that we sometimes do that. We we seem so bent on just keeping things the way they are or any kind of Drastic change means that uh, something's gone afoul, but in reality, a church led by Revelation uh, should be prepared for change at any time. Um, you talk about mormonismincontext.com, your website. I want to just throw something at you that will add some Mormonism in context. Uh, you have recently spent some time with our cousins, uh, the Community of Christ. Yes. Uh, share some thoughts from what you've learned from them and what you've been doing with uh, Oh, man, with, uh, I with had them. a
1: great time in Nauvoo last summer. I spent the entire summer from May to August in Nauvoo living in one of the historic homes, uh, one of the um, right down on Water Street, which is the same street that Joseph and Emma lived on, in the Joseph Smith properties. Uh, and I was maybe, I don't know, a block at the most, less than a block away from the red brick store where the endowment was first introduced. Um, but they hired me as a historical researcher. Uh, this is a summer research fellowship that they offer uh, every year and they do it to get staffing for the tremendous volume of religious pilgrims that they get through the summertime. Uh, people that are going and visiting Mormon historic sites most of them have Utah license plates, <laughs> um, but yeah, this is also pageant season for Nauvoo, so they got the pageants running every night. They've got anywhere, you know, about twenty-five thousand people a day that are that are visiting during the peak of summertime. It's crazy, crazy busy. Uh, they've got people dressed as Joseph and Emma walking around. It really is Mormon Disneyland <laughs> in a way. Um, but I but I got to spend some time there before the busy season peaked and, you know, all the way through the busy season, and then as it kind of tapered off, and I was hired uh, by a, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman by the name of Lachlan Mackay. Um, Lachlan will probably grimace when I announce publicly that he is a direct descendant of Joseph and Emma. He doesn't like to <laughs> announce that. Um, he's a humble man, but uh, he is long-term stock of the church, I guess, is is, is wife. My point is with that and of the Community of Christ, uh, formerly known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, if any listeners are confused about the relationship, some people that came into our tours would assume that Community of Christ bought out the Reorganized Church at some point. That's that's not the case. Uh, the Reorganized Church uh, changed its public name uh, in, I think it was 1981, or maybe it was 91, I think it was 91, to Community of Christ, which they felt was a better uh, description of their religious community. Um, the, as I put it on the, on the tours that I conducted, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of the original name of their church, which was, are you ready? The Church of Jesus Christ. No, excuse me. I got to start over. The reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, comma, we are not the polygamous Mormons in Utah. (laughs) <laughs> they spent most of their time explaining who they weren't and not who they were. So I think that they they changed their name to Community of Christ to really try to get away from constantly having to to defend themselves as to what they were not. Um, it was it was a really good experience working with them. They're wonderful people. Uh, they may not be as connected with some of the things that we are, such as the way that we view temples. Um, they still. View temples as, as an, a central and important part of uh, the restored gospel, but they've never taken to the ordinances uh, that we do in temples. Um, that was something that emerged in Joseph Smith's last couple of years, 1842-43, as far as the endowment and, and eternal sealings of marriages. And for them, they kind of feel that that was um, perhaps some speculation going on there, perhaps influenced from Joseph Smith's um entrance into Freemasonry, and also connected with the Mormon practice of polygamy, which they've rejected since day one. So they never adopted those uh, practices. Um, Now, Emma Smith was sealed to Joseph in the Homestead House. Uh, Emma Smith also received her endowment, and she performed washings and anointings as well. And she did become a member of the reorganized church, Uh, but she never really expressed a desire to uh, kind of go back to those practices, even baptism of the dead, which a lot of reorganized members early on did perform baptism for the dead. They found that to be an important practice, but it just kind of faded away over time. And especially when the Nauvoo temple was destroyed, um, and they, there was no temple anymore, uh, in that part of the country, then they really kind of, uh, distanced themselves from temple ordinance work. Um, so that's, that's a huge difference between us. Uh, and you know, there's, there's several other, Key things, they've adopted more of the Trinitarian view of deity, uh, than the Latter-day Saints did, which arguably the Latter-day Saints kind of continue to develop those ideas further in Utah as far as Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit being separate and distinct from each other. Um, we, we interpreted Joseph Smith's theophany more that way later on than perhaps what was uh, interpreted earlier on in the church's history. So, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely some differences, but as far as, um some of the, the keystone things, like the Book of Mormon, the, the Community of Christ do still consider the Book of Mormon to be religious uh, texts. They consider it to be inspired. Um, they don't demand that you view it as a historical uh, document. They are okay with the idea of it possibly having been a 19th century production, but they still see it as, as divinely inspired. Um, and, other, and other key things. They still use a Doctrine and Covenants. Now, our Doctrine and Covenants and their Doctrine and Covenants separated after 1844, uh, so they've got different additions to their Doctrine and Covenants over the years by Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, and by his grandson, Fred M. Smith, and several others since then. And they've continued to add passages to the Doctrine and Covenants as they've had uh, prophetic changes throughout their uh, history, uh, such as in 1984, they um, felt inspired that it was time to start ordaining women to the priesthood. And that caused a major rift in their church. They lost about a third of their uh, membership some of those uh, created their own, what they call, restorationist groups after that. Some of them are independent churches. Some of them have collected themselves back together into a more centrally organized church. There's one called the Remnant uh, Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints that exists out of Missouri um, that came out of that. But these are people who rejected the uh, ordination of females, thought that the, that the mainstream church was uh, liberalizing too much, and so they kind of split. Um, so one of the things that, that I really learned with the community of Christ is that they're very diverse, uh, from congregation to congregation. In fact, I would argue, and I think that most members of the community of Christ would agree with me, that they're much more congregationally based than they are centrally based. Now, they do have a central headquarters in Independence, Missouri, housed in the temple that they own, in on Temple Lot. Um, they have a prophet uh, president. Um, Stephen VZ is his name. Wonderful individual. Um, I was... Uh, um, I guess you can say pleased to know that when he was installed as their president prophet, he received a letter of congratulations from Salt Lake City uh, for his appointment and his and Salt Lake City's endorse, uh, kind of uh, endorsement of his position over there, um, or at least support for it. The church actually has a pretty good relationship with the Latter Day Saint Church in Utah overall. I mean, we recognize our differences, but we help each other out in a lot of ways. Um, the Joseph Smith Papers Project relies on the Community of Christ's archives for a lot of their documentation. And similarly, the uh, the Community of Christ has relied on um, the LDS Church for historic site preservation and for some funding for helping out in some of those projects that reach out to an LDS audience as well. Um, so they really, you know, they have created a very mutually respectful relationship, especially in their history departments, um, the uh, the history associations that are Not official, but loosely affiliated with the, with the different churches, the Mormon History Association in Utah and the John Whitmer Historic Association that's uh, based out of Missouri. Um, They share a lot of information with each other. They share scholars. They have speakers at each other's conferences. Um, They've been, they've had past presidents of their uh, associations that have been different members of the different faith traditions. I'm currently on the board of the John Whitmer Historic Association. Uh, I spoke at their conference last year in Lamoni, Iowa, which is at Graceland University, which is uh, the reorganized church's version, I guess you can say, of BYU, although it's non-sectarian. And uh, this year, the incoming president for the John Whitmer Historic Association is Brian Hales, uh, who's you know, staunchly LDS. So we've really, I think we have a really good relationship. Um, and I think a lot of members could benefit from, from knowing that and from recognizing that uh, we we do share a, a common heritage and a common history with them, now they are um, you know far more liberalized in their ideas about uh, about Mormonism, at least from the headquarter level um, on a congregational level you 'll find differences you'll find some congregations that are considerably more conservative, and I think it has to do more with geography than anything else um, so some of the more southern based congregations in say Oklahoma uh, or arkansas uh, or Missouri, even you're going to find more conservative members who hold to a much more traditional view on on uh, on the church uh, theology and also a much more uh, conservative view when it comes to social issues. And then in the more urban areas, um, you're going to find much more of a liberalization and you know, acceptance of of LGBT uh, within their congregations and things like that. The church did last, uh, gosh, I guess it was in 2013, did officially um, vote to permit pastors they, they have they have pastors which are fulfill a similar role to bishops, uh, but they permitted their pastors to be able to um to marry uh to perform same sex marriages um where it's legal. So in the states where it's legal. And it and it's up to that congregation to accept that. They don't they're not forced to accept that if that's if that's something that they reject. So you do have congregations that are not performing same sex marriage. But but you do have congregations that are at the same time. They also will offer priesthood um, uh, to uh, openly gay members who are in marriage, legal marriage relationships. So if you are, you know, if you've been legally married, and you can still serve as as an elder or um, a pastor in their church. Um,
0: yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um... That is cool, and I think I've I just did an interview recently with uh, Seth Bryant, yeah. who is a, I think an assistant pastor or associate pastor with the Community of Christ. Really neat yeah, guy, he's wonderful. and is he as and is he opened up about Community of Christ theology? I and again I, I don't want to put a lot into this, but Fowler stages of faith. I, I found the Community of Christ to be more in that kind of Fowler stage four, stage five kind of uh, yeah. liberal way I, of of allowing members room to kind of move. I around. I would say
1: for Seth. Um, that's true. And I would say for a lot of the members that that's true, but, um, I, I wouldn't say that's an across the board thing. I think that
0: that's not what you're going to find. No, everywhere. it's not.
1: I think that you're going to find, um, again, kind of based on the cultural setting of each congregation, I think you're going to find a slightly different, uh, approach to that. You're going to find some congregations that you find are, are very steeped in tea party conservative rhetoric and some congregations that are going to be very fundamentalist when it comes to Scripture, um, and very, no, this is the Word of God, and it's literal. Um, And then you'll find other congregations where that's, you know. The difference is is that because they are not as centrally organized and not as centrally correlated as the LDS churches, they do have that kind of permission to explore um, without being considered in an apostate situation. Whereas within the LDS church, if you had a bishop, I think who started getting up and openly espousing a more symbolic interpretation of scripture, it might cause some challenges within a stake. Um, And it's not because the stake president even disagrees with that, right? It's because that's not the message that we've been asked to present um, from a church headquarters standpoint. We're not asked to stand up and explain our personal um, take on, on scripture exegesis, you know, as a leadership as a church leadership, um, local level church leadership is concerned. So, yeah, you know, they they don't they're not as tightly overseen within their congregations as uh, as the Latter Day Saint churches.
0: Um, I want to wrap up, Brian, and I want to give you a chance to just maybe reach out to those who who are struggling, uh, members of the church who are having a hard time, who perhaps having grown up their entire lives with the Sunday school version of church history for the first time in their life they're encountering difficult facts uh difficult uh historical experiences that uh, that as they read they're having trouble reconciling uh, any thoughts from your point of view on things that uh, that would be helpful towards them or any thoughts from you that go out to them
1: yeah my first of all my sympathy uh goes out to them my my deep heartfelt sympathy i've been through it myself, um, the last time that I talked to you, I was really kind of just past that point of putting it somewhat back together in a way that I felt that I could peacefully coexist with. But 2008, 2009 were rough years for me. Um, so I totally, they, they have my heart, um, going through this process. Um, be patient with yourself and know that you don't have to have all the answers. Um, in order to find a meaningful relationship with the church now i'm gonna I'm going to caveat or play a little bit devil's advocate off of that because it sounds like what I'm saying is just leave some items up on the shelf and don't worry about them and that's not what I'm saying at all what it's you need it's it's okay to look at those things and say, "Well, this is distressing, <laughs> this is disturbing that's okay, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to run away from it as fast as possible. You can still find. That the church has value and meaning for you as a practitioner of Mormonism if you choose to do so. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that tells somebody whether or not I think they should stay in the church or whether they should leave the church. That is entirely a personal decision for me. And to be honest with you, I, I don't really have any different feelings for people who have decided to leave the church. They're still my friends, they're still my brothers and sisters. Um I don't I don't feel this compelling need to keep people in. If if it's causing them emotional damage or psychological damage, if they feel that they need to take a sabbatical from it, if they feel that they need to step away from it, kind of reanalyze things, if they feel they even need to reanalyze whether or not religion has any role in their life, I understand. But for those who say, I like being a Mormon and I don't want to lose this, or those who say, it's going to cause me a lot of pain and rift with my friends and family if I do try to separate myself from this, I would say you don't have to. Um, you can find meaning in the church. I have found meaning in the church. And through going through this process of of learning about the church, I've discovered that on the other end of this, and, and I guess I'll never stop learning about the church, but I've discovered that there that there comes a certain point when I am able to separate the past from the present. And I am able to say that the past no longer dictates or controls my present relationship with the church. My experience with Mormonism on a Sunday to Sunday basis, when I'm going out and doing my home teaching, when I'm going to the temple with my wife, when I'm sitting in the pews and trying to keep my kids calmed down or chasing my toddler out to the hallways of Mormonism really doesn't have a lot of impact about the choices that Brigham Young might have made, or that Joseph Smith might have made, or the history of polygamy. Um, it really is kind of a separate. They're related, and yeah, there are theological implications that we still struggle with. But you can kind of make Mormonism what you want it to be. You can bring into it what you, how you want to engage. And and if I'm adv- it sounds like I'm advocating cherry picking. I am, but I'm not advocating it in a defensive posturing way. I'm advocating it in a constructive way. At some point, you need to take control over your own religious experience and not be controlled by it. And in, in this way, I found that I was able to exist within Mormonism and still say, yeah, there's some issues that are still on the table for me. And there's some cultural things that I might not agree with. I love the leaders of the church, but I don't always agree with them and how they view society. And that's okay. That doesn't mean I can't sustain them in their roles as leaders of the church, and hope that the church will continue to evolve, continue to receive insight into how it can relate better with those who feel marginalized within our community. Um, We can be part of this community, or we can continue to try to actively work against it, and sometimes only bring further pain to ourselves and relationships that we have with others. So if you are a Latter-day Saint who feels like you don't want to leave your tradition, but you feel conflicted about it. Hang in there. Just keep going. You don't need to stand up in the middle of Sunday school and say, well, I think Joseph Smith was a big perverted fraud. You don't need to become combative. Just keep moving forward. Keep taking a step at a time. Keep learning about the history. I, I promise you at some point it becomes less shocking. And at some point you're able to kind of take it in as its whole and say, okay, <laughs> it is what it is. And now what's my choice? How am I gonna, how am I gonna confront this? And I think that's a process of spiritual maturity.
0: Amen. That's been my experience as well. Uh, Brian, one more time, give us the URL of, uh, of the website that you've been working on.
1: MormonismInContext.com.
0: Excellent. And so I hope people will check that out. Uh, check out Bowman's book, uh, the PBS uh, documentary, the other articles that you've got listed. I think all of this together will help those members who are in that state of shock to begin to to kind of deconstruct the way they had it together and then reconstruct it in a way that uh as we say here on the podcast allows them to lead with faith. Brian Whitney, uh thanks again for being on. This is your second time. Uh so you and Brian Hales both uh uh-huh. are tied right now for the record for being on think twice. For Brian's, apparently. Uh, uh, you got it. <laughs> So, so that's, that must be the key. And, uh, I hope we can do this again sometime, but thank you for giving us uh, your I'm, time tonight. I'm honored,
1: Bill. It's, I, again, I, I think you're doing a, a marvelous service for people, and I, and I really hope that you continue to thrive and grow in, uh, in what you're doing. Don't, don't, don't go thank anywhere, you. okay?
0: <laughs> I'm not. Thank you so much. who brought them dead to life He's the one who fed the hungry
1: And who gave the blind their sight He's the one who walked on water Then he brought them safe to shore
0: And whenever you may need him He's the one you're looking for So let him in Will take away your pain. When you feel His love, you'll never be the same. Come unto Christ.
1: Come unto Him. Hand by His grace.